Okay, so I'm going to tell you the name. I actually named my lesson, and I want you to just react to it in your heart. You don't have to react out to it verbally. Okay, the name is The Wonderful Fear of God. Okay, The Wonderful Fear of God. And I've been studying out the fear of God, and actually fear as well. And there's a lot in the Bible about fear. Uh, tons in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want to talk today about fear, but specifically the fear of God. And I want to explore um, what is the role that fear should play in our relationship with God. What do the scriptures teach about that? Should the fear of God motivate us as Christians today? What did Jesus say about fearing God? And is fear of God something we should overcome? Or is it something we should treasure and grow in? And perhaps my title gives away where I'm coming from. Um, I'm going to try to convince you that the fear of God is a wonderful thing. Um, I'm going to give it my best shot. Of course, I don't want you to take my word for it. We're going to look at a bunch of scriptures and I have notes that you can go through, and you can do your own study. I'm just going to tap the surface on this topic. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three men in the Old Testament who feared God. And they were commended in the scriptures for fearing God. Okay, And then we're going to compare these men to the teachings of Jesus and some of the teachings in the New Testament and to find out what the role of fear should be for Christians today. First, though, I want to say that um, there are many places where God tells us not to fear. Okay? And we're not going to talk a lot about that, but I just want to hit a couple of those things. Um, he tells us that the holy women who trusted God, this is in 1 Peter chapter 3, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So Peter is writing to say that the godly women don't give in to fear. Okay? In Luke 12, addressing fear and anxiety about perhaps not having enough food to eat, Jesus says, Do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus says, don't fear about where your next meal is coming from. Mm. And then Jesus in Matthew 10, he's addressing his followers, his apostles, and he's talking about persecution. And he's saying, you know, guess what? I'm, I'm going to get persecuted. I'm persecuted. They're going to persecute you because the student's going to be just like his teacher. Okay, so if you're, I'm persecuted, you're going to get persecuted. But therefore, he says, do not fear them. And he goes and talks to them about why they shouldn't fear um, those who could kill them. Okay, so there's lots and lots of places where God says, don't fear. But we're going to be talking about some men, three men, who did fear God. And they were commended for it. So two of these men, most of you probably have met before. You'll know their stories well, and perhaps one, not so much. Let's start in chapter 6 of Genesis, and we're going to talk about Noah.
Okay, chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 5. Then the Lord God saw man's wickedness, that it was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts within his heart was only evil continually. So God was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and he thought this over. Then God said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the earth, from man to cattle, and from the creeping things to the birds of heaven. For I am grieved I made them. But Noah found grace in the presence of the Lord. Pick up in verse 13. That God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with unrighteousness through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of square timber. You shall make the ark in compartments and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Thus you shall make the ark 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in breadth, and 30 cubits in height. Now when you assemble the ark, you shall gradually finish it up to a cubit at the top and set the door in its side. You shall make the ark with lower, second, and third stories. Behold, I am bringing a flood of water on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Whatever is on the earth shall die, and I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. From every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kinds, of animals after their kind, and of every creeper, creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind, they will enter into the ark with you, male and female, to keep them alive. You shall also take for yourselves all kinds of food to eat, and you shall gather it both for yourself and for them. Thus Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your family, because I have seen you righteous before me in this generation. So, the one who had created heavens and earth and placed man over it was grieved. God was grieved that he had created man. And he had demonstrated great compassion on man. He had provided for man in great kindness. He had put them over man, over all the animals, over the earth, and yet he, this compassion and kindness was returned with wickedness, and God was grieved. But he saw Noah, righteous Noah, and he told him, I'm going to destroy everything, right? But I want you to build an ark to save yourself and your family, because you are righteous. And God took compassion on Noah um, and his family, and he told him to do this crazy thing. He said, I want you to build this boat, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall. So that's about 450 feet long, 75 feet um, wide, and 45 feet tall. So Chris understands these dimensions. This is a big construction project Okay, that would take many, many years, a massive endeavor let alone this endeavor of bringing all these animals on board this thing, okay? So it took many, many years. God believes, Noah believes God. He builds the ark just like God told him to do. And of course, God brings the flood and destroys the world and saves Noah. 
So, I want you to think about this. What, <laughs> what Noah might have been thinking as he's building this thing over a period of many years when it probably didn't make a lot of sense. There's, there's this huge construction project um, in Belmont and just they're redoing the high school. It's just massive and there's all these trucks and people and all these different crews and they're building this thing. It's going to take probably a year or two to do. But everyone knows that well, the whole point of all this activity is to build the school for all the, the kids and high school kids in, in Belmont. But here, this ark, like, what, what what's this all about? Why are you building this? And the ridicule Noah must have taken, the doubt, I would think he might feel at certain times, certain days, why am I doing this? What am I giving all this time and energy for? Is this really going to happen? Now, he had heard God tell him what to do, but I would have been tempted, if I don't know, to, to doubt whether this is really necessary, okay, after all those years. And I want you then to think about what it must have been like for Noah when it started to rain and the waters start rising, the floods start coming, and then he enters the ark. The things that must have been going through his heart. And I think it would have been a real mixture of things. One might have been just, I'm not crazy. Like, what I've been holding on to, God's command, there was a purpose to it. And it's now being fulfilled. And that might have been one thing he was thinking about. Another thing he might have been thinking about was just, wow, this is just terrible. I mean, there's literally, people are drowning. His neighbors, his friends, the whole world is being destroyed before his eyes. And the terror of that, and of course the gratitude of being among those who are saved in the ark, and perhaps all these things together. The question is, what motivated, I want to ask us, is what motivated Noah to do all this over all these years? Because in hindsight, it's obvious, right? Yeah, the flood came, but for him, it wasn't so obvious when he was going through it. What motivated him to do this work? And let's go over to Hebrews 11. Is it would have taken a lot of stamina, persistence, and fortitude to keep this up over all these years to build this great, massive boat? And so something was driving Noah. And in verse, chapter 11, verse 7, we read that by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So it says here that Noah was divinely warned that this was going to happen, that judgment was going to come. I think it's interesting interesting it says it doesn't say he was lovingly encouraged, okay? In fact, he was divinely warned that this was going to happen. And it says he was moved with godly fear to obey God, to obey what God had commanded. And he appears to be confident that God would do exactly what he said he was going to do. Unfortunately, Noah's neighbors didn't have the same fear that Noah had. And this was a problem for them. 
In Romans 3, Paul talks about how both the Gentiles and the Jews are alike under sin. And he says in chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here Paul is quoting Isaiah 59, as well as Psalm 35, verse 2. And so, equality of the people who don't know God, who are living outside of God, is that they don't fear God. Okay, so that's a characteristic of people who are outside of God, in a relationship with God. There's this... Every time we come, we drive to the Trigonuses, we see this, um, we drive by this, um, it's this roast beef shop. And there's half of the song, half of the sign has fallen down, so I think it says something like, St. Pete's, St. Beef, it says St. Beef. Um, so it's a holy beef, but actually I think it was supposed to be roast beef. Um, but anyways, it's a, it's a roast beef shop. And in, in Massachusetts, there's lots of roast beef shops. Well, unfortunately for a lot of these guys, they're in big trouble. So recently, in the last few years, there's been a lot of roast beef shops, owners who are evading their taxes. Okay, So in Saugus, Giovanni's Roast Beef and Pizza Shop basically stopped reporting their tax revenue. Okay, the tax, they had brought in money from a different country. Um, a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of immigrants who come to Boston and they set up, I guess, roast beef shops as well as other kinds of restaurants. And so they weren't paying their taxes. And um, Mike's famous roast beef shop and pizza in North Reading also recently was indicted for failure to pay their taxes. Okay, so... I'm a estate planning attorney, and so I have people occasionally come in and, and basically make comments that they're not going to pay their taxes, and we have a conversation about that because in the United States, you really do need to pay your taxes. Okay, if you don't pay your taxes, you get in trouble. Now, these guys who were running roast beef shops may have felt that you know what, I don't need to fear the government. Um, they're not going to do anything. Maybe where they came from, the governments didn't crack down on your taxes. But this is a very rude awakening when the IRS agent comes knocking on your door and asks to see your tax returns, and then all of a sudden you're in front of a judge in a courtroom, and then you're being bound up, you're, you're being handcuffed and taken to prison. Okay, This is a very rude awakening of the reality of the laws in Massachusetts. Okay, And I feel bad. I don't feel so bad, but I, I, I'm like, wow, these guys really didn't think they had to pay their taxes. They could just have all this money and, and not do that. And so what the authorities do is they hand down verdicts. And what typically happens is the, the Globe and different people will publish these things because they're, they're an interesting feature story, right? And the word gets out, and that's exactly what the authorities want. Okay, it's called deterrence. We're going to punish people so people don't keep doing mm. the same thing, okay? I think a lack of fear of tax evasion is bad, but a lack of fear of God's expectations for our lives, when he is the judge and he will come to judge and bring back a proper verdict, is a much greater problem. And we should also take note and um, make sure we're abiding in all that God commanded. Also, Noah want his whole family to come along in the ark. 
And so they work together. It says in Hebrews 11 that God, Noah's godly fear and righteous life, and I believe his ark building, condemned the world. His righteous life in a wicked world um, was a warning to others of the coming judgment. And this is exactly what Paul speaks of as well. Let's, let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We pick up in verse 9. Paul is writing to the church, the Christians... He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences." So Paul is saying that, hey, look, we're all going to be judged. Just like in Noah's day, they all were judged. And we're going to be judged according to the good and bad that we do. And he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we try to persuade men. And, and Paul knew the terror of the Lord because, remember, Paul himself was persecuting and even giving approval to killing Christians. Can you imagine how Paul felt when he was knocked off that horse headed to Damascus, and realized that he had been persecuting God's own sons and daughters. He thought he had been worshiping God, but he hadn't been. He, had, he didn't know God clearly. And all of a sudden he realized he's been persecuting Jesus, um, who's now knocked him off his, his horse, and now he's got to come to terms with that. He knew the terror of God, and he also knew the love of God and the forgiveness of God. Later on in this next paragraph, in verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for us, for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Mm-hmm. So Paul, we see here, was motivated, was compelled by Christ's love. He was also compelled by the terror of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And this drove him to share his faith with other people, mm-hmm. um, to bring them to Christ. One question to ask myself is, how did Noah stay righteous in this wicked generation? I mean, this is a really wicked place. God was looked down and was so, it was so wicked that he was grieved in his heart. He even made man. Uh, that's pretty bad. And so, I don't know about you, but I find that when I hang out with people, I become like them. Now, you know, longer I'm married to Ava, we become more and more like each other. And our people constantly say, you know, you're just like your kids or your kids are just like you, how we talk, how we express ourselves. But this can be how also deal with our character, our moral character. If you're hanging out with wicked people, thankfully my household is not wicked. um, But if you're hanging out with wicked people, that can creep in. How did Noah stay righteous in this wicked environment? I believe it was because he was moved by godly fear. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Paul, again, is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. And in verse 17, he says, Therefore, 
Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay? So Paul is quoting, he's quoting from 1 Samuel 7, 14, um, but he's, he's reminding them that you are, I'm, God's our Father, and we're your sons and daughters. And this is a really beautiful relationship. This is a loving relationship. God's our Father. In addition to that, he says that you need to cleanse yourselves from the filthiness of the, of, of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. These are to, writing to Christians. As we become more and more holy, fear of God is going to play a role in this. Okay? I've been a Christian for about 30 years or so, and I find that it's a journey. And so you fight, you fight, and you're, you, you, you know, when you come to faith, you like realize you have all the sin in your life, and you repent of it. There's a fear of God. There's a love of God. And then you, you grow, and then you kind of hit this new level where you're like, oh, well, my goodness, what, what am I doing? Like, I'm really missing a lot here, what God expects of me. Then you repent, and you, you, you grow, and then you're doing well, and all of a sudden you, there's this whole other unveiling of the eyes of what am I doing? God's expectation is so much higher than what I'm how I'm living. And, and it's like, I, I've got to repent. I've got to be more like Jesus. And then you repent, you see it and repent, and then you go along, and then it happens again and again. It's so humbling. And I felt like this last week I had one of those moments where I'm like, man, I got to like totally up this, like a bunch of notches from where I'm at spiritually. And I think that's just, I'm glad God doesn't reveal it all to us in one point. I, I'm sure I couldn't handle it. <laughs> but I think the fear of God plays a role in this, in the motivation, as well as the love of God. You know, Paul writes here that, yeah, that, that we're perfected in holiness in the fear of God. Now, we can think of other examples in the scriptures. The one I thought of, of that wasn't the fear, but maybe the love of God, was, was Joseph, when he was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, and she wants to, him to come to bed with her, and he says, no. My, you know, basically, he's, he's saying, I was in prison, and your master has given me everything in your household to manage. He's raised me up. I have all this, I'm not in prison anymore, and I have all the, everything except you. How could I possibly sin against God? I mean, God has been so gracious to me and has helped me. And I appreciate that spirit as well. Mm-hmm. I would never sin against God by doing such a wicked thing. But there's also a fear of God that we see in the scriptures. I think it's both. Proverbs tells us, um, there's a, there's a, Irenaeus is a, was a bishop and elder in the church of Lyon. Lyon's is modern day France. Um, and this is around 180 AD. And he quotes from Proverbs. And I, I like what he said. It helped me think about this and understand this in maybe a little bit better way. He said, about the fear of God. He says, Now the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, that's from Proverbs, right? He says, Now the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The recognition of sin leads us to repentance. 
And God bestows his compassion upon those who are repentant. I thought it was a beautiful picture of the fear of God. Think about it as a Christian. We continually fear God. We continually repent of our sins. And when we repent, God showers us with his compassion, his forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And we experience his love in an even in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. So I see this as a picture of, God, of the fear of God, repentance, and the love of God all kind of working together mm-hmm. that I might be closer to him. And so I see in Noah... I see fear playing a really important role um, that I can apply to myself as a Christian. Not getting pulled into the wickedness of the world. I don't want to get near the wickedness of the world. Being perfected in holiness. And then the last thing was just to really work hard. Noah spent much of, many years of his life building this massive boat, okay? When it probably made no sense whatsoever to make sure his family could come into it and be saved. And I personally want to be motivated, even though it may seem crazy to the world, to build the ark, okay? To build God's church here. To do the hard work. And I think being motivated out of fear is a part of that. The judgment is coming. And I want to bring as many people in as possible before the day of wrath is here. Okay. Let's go on to Abraham. Let's go over to Genesis 22. This is another story we we know pretty well. And I'm going to read this passage. And in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham. Okay? So we're going to read about a test he gave him. I want you to think about what was the test. Specifically, what was the test? Okay? Let's read. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your beloved son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a whole burnt offering on one of the mountains, I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split firewood for the whole burnt offering, and arose and went to the place God told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Thus Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the firewood of the whole burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Then he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the firewood, but where is the sheep for the whole burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the sheep for a whole burnt offering. So the two of them went together. They came to the place where God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed firewood in order. And he bound Isaac his son hand and foot and laid him on the altar upon the firewood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. He then replied, Do not lay your hand on the lad 
or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, since for my sake you have not spared your beloved son. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him a ram was caught in a thicket by its horns, so he brought it for a whole burnt offering in the place of his son. Thus Abraham called the name of the place the Lord has appeared. And as it is said to this day, in the mountains the Lord was seen. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of the heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you did this thing, and for my sake did not spare your beloved son, I will certainly bless you, and assuredly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore, and your seed shall inherit the cities of your enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his servants, and they rose and went together to the well of the oath, and Abraham dwelt at the well of oath. So, what was the test? You guys get it? He says, Abraham's got the knife. He's ready to obey God and kill his son. And the angel says, Don't lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know you fear God. So he feared God and he passed the test. What what does God want from us? I mean, I think he's made he's made it clear from the beginning in Deuteronomy 6, he says, "You shall love the Lord your God from your whole heart, from your whole soul, and from your whole power." He wants all of us. He wants all of our hearts. He wants to be first. He wants to be king. He wants our love. He doesn't want anything to come in place of that. And here was the test, right? Abraham had been longing for a son, his own son, from his loins. And he was so old, he waited so long, he finally got it. <laughs> he finally gets his beloved son. <laughs> and then God says, go kill him. And though the temptation must have been so great. He, he had worked so hard for this, he finally got it. And he was supposed to let go of it. And yet somehow, remember we read we in Hebrews 11, that somehow Abraham... He reasoned it out. He, know, he knew God was faithful to his promises. He knew God had promised to bless him to bless all the nations through his seed. Somehow God was going to work. He thought he was going to raise him up from the dead, and figuratively he did raise him up from the dead, right? But he, he was willing to do what God said because he feared the Lord. And he put God first. He didn't hold on. And this is exactly what Jesus tells us, right? In Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Of course, he's speaking of money. He says, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But we honestly, we can't serve anything else and God. And, and Abraham, the fear of God was something that allowed him to put God first and put secondary what he clearly held most dear. And I think, again, as a Christian who's living for a long time, you know, I can be doing great this. I remember when I was out of college, I'm, I'm going I'm to put God first. You know, I'm going to put him before my wife and my house and my money. Well, guess what? I didn't have a wife and I didn't have a house and I didn't have any money. <laughs> and so in life then we start growing and we get things. We get a family and we get a home and we, maybe we get a home and we get money. We have a job and we, we build a, 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 a business. And it's a constant test. We're going to keep putting it on the altar and put God first. And I find this is a constant challenge. And the fear of God to me is a wonderful thing. Because I want to fear God more than I protect these things or try to take control of these things. Just like Abraham did. But what about love? Shouldn't I also be motivated out of love for God? I mean, should fear be my motivation to keep God first? I want to look at a couple of ways that Jesus motivated people. Let's go over to Matthew 5. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is where Jesus, this is the core of Jesus' teachings, okay? So how did he motivate people to live lives that honored God, that, that we might be close to God our Father as his sons and daughters? In Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. To me, that is a warning when I read that. I read that and that scares me. Because my righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. I need a totally different righteousness. Or I won't get into the kingdom. Matthew 5, 22 but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He goes on, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. He goes on to say, be reconciled with your brother before you bring your gift to the altar, unless you go before the judge and you're thrown in prison. Okay, Jesus is clearly using fear here when it deals with anger in our hearts. In Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. He had just talked about lust. And he talks about the right eye. So, Jesus has no problem motivating us out of fear to be pure 
to deal with lust, to deal with anger in our hearts. I know as men, anger and lust, that, those can rule us. Those can, can control many, many lives of men. And Jesus seemed to feel that it was appropriate to warn us of dangers of hellfire if we pursue these sins and don't deal with those sins. I, I, I'm, a couple weeks ago, Chuck mentioned that one of the early Christians talked about killing the cub before it becomes a lion. We take care of the cub before it's full grown. And gets a great picture of dealing with temptation. But fear should motivate us. Yet in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also motivates out of love. I mean, in, in chapter 5, he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers. And we get this whole picture that God's heart is so concerned for those who are poor and mourning and, and who are being merciful and making peace. I mean, he cares so deeply to take care of them. It's a beautiful picture. In uh, Matthew 5, let's look at verse 43. He says, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just now the unjust. I mean, what is Jesus doing? He's saying basically, love your enemy because God loves his enemy. God sends rain on the just and the unjust, the sun. He blesses even the unjust. Be like your father who's perfect in heaven. At the end of that passage, he says, therefore you should be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. So here we have God saying, be like me in my love. Let's go over to Luke 12. One more passage. And this passage just oozes of God's care for us. Verse 22, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, the body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying could add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, just oozes of God's care and compassion for us. And so I, I see God here using both, Jesus using both the fear of God and his great compassion and love to motivate our hearts to, to become like him, to become perfect as God is perfect. 
And, and I think it's both. It's both the fear of God, it plays an important role, and, the, and the understanding the love of God plays a really important role. Mm. And he wants us to understand both of them. You know, sin is so deceptive. It can get us in so many ways. There's so many godly men and women in the scriptures who have fallen, that in this life have fallen, over the years have fallen. And I believe we need both sides, both the love and the, and the fear, to overcome this world, to, to be motivated um, and to, to deal with our sin in our hearts and our lives. Let me just read you a couple passages. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes in verse 17, he says, And if you call on the Father, I want you to see both the love and the fear wrapped up in these short passages. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So we have sons and daughters, we're calling on the Father who cares for us, but we're conducting ourselves during this time here in fear as well. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We see both the beloved, you're loved, but work it out with fear and trembling. There's so many passages. I encourage you to go through as you read through the scriptures. You'll see so many places where the fear of God and the love of God are just so tightly wound up. And I think it's really helpful. I'll just give you one example. The parable of the talents. We know the story of the three guys were given different numbers of talents, and two of them go and they, 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 they do what the master said, and they take their talents and they earn more talents. And um, they come back, and the master is so happy, and he says, come and share in the master's joy. I mean, just the love, the master just blessing them for what, just for doing what he had said. He had given the money, they just did what he said, and he brings them into his joy. And of course, there was the one that just went and dug a hole and put it in there and disobeyed the master. And he said, you wicked, lazy servant. And, and he's cast out when there's gnashing of teeth. Uh, does Jesus tell his parable to motivate us out of fear or out of love? Yes. <laughs> I think the first two motivate me out of God's great love, his generosity, mm-hmm. his care. And the third one is, is clearly a warning to me. Um, mm. I want to be moved by, by all those examples. So Abraham, did he fear God or did he love God? What motivated him? We, we know the scriptures say that he feared God. Right, and and God then poured out His blessing not only on His seed for Abraham's family, but to bless the, all the nations. Ultimately, Jesus would come from His loins, and and um, I love it in Second Chronicles twenty verse seven. King Jehoshaphat is in big trouble. He's got enemies just coming down to destroy him. They're, Israel is surrounded by their enemies. And Jehoshaphat cries out to the Lord and he reminds the Lord about Abraham's seed and the blessing that was supposed to come through his seed. He says, Are you not the Lord who, dro- who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to your seed of Abraham, your friend forever? 
And so he calls Abraham God's friend. And James does the same thing in James 2.23. It says he was called the friend of God, speaking of Abraham. So again, here we see Abraham feared God, but he was also God's friend. Mm -hmm. And they were there together, existing together. And he passed the test. I'm going to look at one more guy, and I'm going to summarize the story. Let's go over to, to, to 1 Kings 18. That would be 3rd Kingdoms. Chapter 18, if you're reading a version based on the Septuagint. This might be a guy that you're less familiar with. The context is Elijah, Elijah um, had warned Israel there was going to be a drought. Okay, um, Elijah's on the run. He's in hiding. Um, Ahab is trying to destroy him, King Ahab. He's got a wicked wife, Jezebel. And there's no rain, and Elijah has said, there's going to be no rain except for my word. And so um, Ahab wants to kill him, but he can't find him. And we'll pick up in chapter 18, in verse 3. And Ahab has a servant called Obadiah. We'll pick up in verse 3. Then Ahab, so remember, Ahab's trying to track down Elijah so he can kill him. Then Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. So Ahab said to Obadiah, Let us go into the land to the springs of water and brooks. Perhaps we will find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so none of the livestock dies. Remember, there's a drought, so Ahab's seeking Obadiah's help. Go find some water and some food for the, for the livestock. So, they, so, so, so to explore it, they divided the path between them. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way. So they part. Now Obadiah was alone on his way, and Elijah come, came alone to meet him. Obadiah quickly fell on his face in Elijah's presence and said, My lord Elijah, is that you? Elijah replied, It is I. Go, tell your master, Behold, Elijah is here. So Obadiah said, What sin did I commit for you to give me, your servant, into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to hunt you. If they said he is not here, then he, Ahab, sent fire to the kingdom and its territories because he did not find you. So now you say to me, go tell your master, behold, Elijah is here. But if I do so, it shall come to pass. When I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord shall carry you to land I do not know. Moreover, when I go and report this to Ahab, he will kill me. Yet your servant fears the Lord from his youth. Was it not reported to you, my Lord? As to what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. But now you say to me, Go tell your master, Behold, Elijah is here, but he will kill me. Then Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand today, I will appear to him. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab ran out and went to meet Elijah. Okay. So did you follow what was happening? Obadiah is a servant of Ahab. 
he's gone with Ahab, they split ways, and Obadiah runs into Elijah, and Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here, and he's like, wait, if you're here, you're going to just disappear before I get back. If you disappear when I come back, he's going to kill me. Are you trying, are you trying to kill me? Because you know that's what's going to happen. And I, So what, what's, what's up? And he says, no, don't worry about it. I'll be here. I'm going to meet Ahab. And so Obadiah says, okay. And he goes to Ahab. Okay. Now Obadiah had relied on, told, to, he said when he's kind of pleading for his life with Elijah, he's saying, look, you know I fear the Lord. Remember when I saved a hundred prophets? I, I hid them in a cave? I mean, I'm Ahab's servant. I risked my own life to hide them in a cave. I fear the Lord. Um, so, why are you trying to kill me now? Okay. So, what do I learn about Obadiah? What I learn is he fears the Lord greatly. And he says he had done that since he was a youth. As a young man, somehow he had come to learn to fear the Lord. And it was proven out when he risked his own life to save these prophets by hiding them in a cave. It was proven again when he took Elijah at his word. Because he knew he was going to die if Elijah disappeared. And that's what had been happening. Elijah was just, the king couldn't find him. Every time he thought he knew he was, Elijah would disappear. And so he was afraid that would happen. But he, he, he listened to Elijah, and he took him at his word, and he went and found the king. And of course, Elijah was there when he came back. And we have the famous confrontation with the prophets of Baal. So what I learned from Obadiah is that his fear of God is greater than his fear of men. This guy is fearless. He was willing to stand up to save God's people, to save a hundred prophets and hide them, to risk his own life, when he's actually the servant in Ahab's household. This guy is fearless. And then, for Elijah just to say, I'll be here, when Elijah hasn't done that for years, he's been disappearing. But he's like, okay, I fear God. I know this is a man of God, so therefore, I fear God, and his fear was greater than his fear of being killed by Ahab. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches. Go over to Matthew 10. Exactly. In verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant, this is 10 verse 24, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear on the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, the fear of God allows us to overcome the fear of men. It is so wonderful. The fear of men is so gripping. It can be so controlling. The terrible sin and the way out of it, I think, one of the, the ways out of it is to really fear God, to love God, to fear Him, to fear the one that can kill the soul and throw it into hell. Not just the one that can only kill your life. <laughs> he goes on and talks about the sparrows. He says, not one of them falls to the ground without your Father's will. That's not that encouraging to me because it sounds like God knows when they all fall to the ground. <laughs> it doesn't mean he's not going to let them fall to the ground. The sparrows might die. We could die of persecution. But it would only be within the Father's will. And it would only be the death of our bodies. I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying you are more of more value than many sparrows. Many, many sparrows. I think the wonderful fear of God helps us to overcome the fear of man. Mm. I want to close out with just looking at a couple scriptures that speak of Jesus. And I want to go back to Isaiah 11. Mm. Let's pick up in verse 1. Mm. There shall come forth a rod from the root of Jesse, and a flower shall grow out of his root. The Spirit of God shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and godliness. The Spirit of the fear of God shall fill him. He shall not judge by reputation or convict by common talk, but he will judge the cause of the humble and reprove the humble of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the word of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the ungodly. He shall gird his loins with righteousness and cover his sides with truth. So this, of course, is a, is a prophecy of Jesus, right? The Spirit of God will rest upon him. We think of Jesus when he was baptized. Spirit descended upon him. And Jesus was filled with God's Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel and might. What a wonderful, he's so wise. Jesus was so wise. He had such understanding. He had such great counsel. The way he could get to people's hearts and, and counsel them. The might, the strength, the knowledge, the godliness. But the seventh characteristic of the Spirit says that the Spirit of the fear of God shall fill him. So Jesus was filled with the spirit of the fear of God. What did that produce? Look at verse 6. Think about the life, the ministry, what Jesus' teachings and life produced. The wolf shall lay, feed with the lamb, the leopard shall lay down with the young goat, and the calf, the bull, and the lion shall feed together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together, and their young ones shall lie down together. The lion and the ox shall eat straw together, the nursing child shall play by the hole of the asps, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the den of asps. They shall not hurt, nor be able to destroy anyone on my holy mountain. 
for the whole world shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as much water covers the seas. Mm-hmm. So Jesus' fear of God, his understanding of his love of God, but including the fear that filled him, produced peace, mm-hmm. reconciliation. All these animals, what a great image of these animals. These are the animals that are supposed to be destroying each other. They're living at peace with one another. Jesus' fear of God motivated him to live a life to um, produce the answer to the the solution of of reconciliation to God and peace among men. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son. Jesus, the Son of God, offering tears and prayers with godly fear. And the final scripture, I want to go over to John 17. So the the same, this is the same Jesus, right? (laughs) That was moved with godly fear, was filled with the spirit of fear, who offered up reverent prayers, cries and tears, moved out of godly fear, though he was a son. In 17, John 17, verse 24, Jesus cries out to the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus was filled with God's love, understood it, and was trying to give that love to us. He was also filled with the spirit of the fear of God. They both existed and were there. So I pray that um, those pictures, those stories, those examples would help you to consider what, what's the proper role of fear in our lives. And we don't want to sway too far in either direction, but what I took out of my own study, and, I, and you can go, I'll, I'll post my notes, and this is just touching the surface, but where I came out was I need a much deeper understanding of the fear of God and I need a much deeper understanding of the love of God. <laughs> and these are both wonderful things. Amen.